Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 platinum jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we'll be looking at one of Italy's most well-known art figures, Michelangelo. Considered by many to be one of the greatest artists of all time, Michelangelo had a profound influence on art as we know it today. A renowned sculptor, painter, poet, and even architect in his later years, Michelangelo could easily have been a contender for the illustrious title of a Renaissance man, a title given to a fellow Florentine artist, Leonardo da Vinci. While he's probably most well-known for painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo considered himself a sculptor above all. During the painting of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo wrote a poem describing his thoughts on the project, saying, quote, My painting is dead. I am not in the right place. I am not a painter. End quote. With no wife or children to care for, Michelangelo spent all his time focused entirely on the arts. Most of his works were made for other people. His biggest client was Pope Julius II, who commissioned Michelangelo to build his tomb. After 40 years of work, Michelangelo was never able to finish it to his own liking. He epitomized the tortured artist. So how did this tortured soul become one of the greatest artists in history? Michelangelo was born on March 6, 1475, in Caprice, Italy, to Lodovico and Francesca. Giorgio Vasari wrote that the planets on the night of Michelangelo's birth, quote, demonstrated that he would produce marvelous and stupendous works of art and genius. Michelangelo's father was Podesta of Caprice at the time of Michelangelo's birth, meaning he was a high-seated government official. Lodovico's time in office finished shortly after Michelangelo's birth, so he decided to move his family to the quieter city of Florence. At the time, it was commonplace to send your child away to be cared for by a wet nurse. Michelangelo was no exception. He was sent to the village of Settignano, a town known for its stone quarries. 
Michelangelo's nurse was the wife and daughter of a family of stonecutters. In fact, he credits the nature of his nursing as part of the reason he became a sculptor, saying, From my nurse I got my chisel and hammer with which I make my figures. As soon as Michelangelo became old enough, his father sent him to grammar school to study under Master Francesco d'Arbino with the hopes that he would go into the silk trade. Michelangelo had no interest in learning the business of buying and selling silk, as he was drawn to art from an early age. He made friends with a few students of local painters and sculptors and spent most of his time drawing instead of studying up on textiles. It was during this time that Michelangelo befriended a boy named Francesco Granacci, who was six years older than Michelangelo and a student of Master Domenico Ghilandaio, a master painter of the time. They became lifelong friends. In fact, Francesco would later help Michelangelo paint the Sistine Chapel. Francesco brought drawings by his master to Michelangelo so that he could copy them, thus furthering Michelangelo's involvement in the arts. Michelangelo's family felt that they were not sophisticated enough for the nobility and excellence of art, feeling that it was something meant for the upper class of society and greatly discouraged him from pursuing it in any form, even going so far as beating him. Michelangelo's father, while not happy at his son's interests, eventually gave in, seeing that he couldn't change the boy's mind. He sent Michelangelo to study under Ghilandaio at the age of 14, alongside his friend Francesco. When it comes to Michelangelo's time studying under Ghirlandaio, the details are a little unclear. What do you mean? Well, the history of Michelangelo is unique in the sense that he may very well be one of the first people to have had a biography written about him while he was still alive. If that's the case, wouldn't that mean that he would have a pretty accurate depiction of his life? Not exactly. There were two biographies at the time written about Michelangelo. The first was written in 1550 by a man named Giorgio Vasari, a close friend of Michelangelo. In his book, Vasari describes Michelangelo's master as admiring Michelangelo's talent and skill from early on and giving him the proper teaching and tools to learn and succeed. What about the second biography? That's where things get a little muddy. The second biography was written in 1553 by a man named Escanio Condivi. He claimed that many of the things Vasari wrote in his book were inaccurate. In his book, The Life of Michelangelo, he wrote that Master Ghirlandaio was anything but kind to the boy, saying that he was jealous of the young Michelangelo and had a history of sending away young artists that showed great talent. So the only primary source historical accounts of Michelangelo's apprenticeship say completely different things? How are we supposed to know what actually happened? Well, there really is no way to know for certain. But while we might not know about his relationship with his master, we do know that it was during this time that he was exposed to the art of fresco painting, a style of painting that involved applying pigment to wet plaster. This is the technique Michelangelo would later use to paint the Sistine Chapel. That's right. Michelangelo's apprenticeship began in 1488, when he was 14, and only lasted for about a year. But this early training under Ghirlandaio was when Michelangelo honed his skills and learned multiple techniques of drawing and painting. After spending a year learning under Ghirlandaio, Michelangelo's friend Francesco took him to see the statue garden of Lorenzo Medici, a member of the powerful Medici banking family. Michelangelo was so enraptured by the sculptures that he ended up skipping class to go back and spend more time studying the statues in the garden. 
It's also said that this was the place where Michelangelo first met the young Giovanni and Giulio Medici, both future popes of the Catholic Church. Around this time, in the 1480s, Lorenzo Medici was focused on the task of trying to raise the art of sculpture to the same status as that of painting. He approached multiple masters within Florence and asked them to send some of their most promising students to study at his newly founded school for sculpture. Since Lorenzo was essentially the lord of Florence at the time, it was kind of hard to say no. So, Master Ghirlandaio, seeing Michelangelo's newfound interest in sculpture, sent him to study at the Medici School in 1489 under Master Bertoldo di Giovanni. He sent Francesco, too. Truly inseparable. I imagine they probably got into a bit of trouble together at school. Michelangelo spent three years studying at the Medici School. He studied sculpting of various materials, mainly marble. Supposedly, Michelangelo gained the favor of Lorenzo Medici by copying a carving of a marble mask of a fawn. Upon seeing the mask, Lorenzo recognized potential for great talent and requested an audience with Michelangelo's father. In his meeting with Michelangelo's father, Lorenzo asked to become the guardian of Michelangelo. Lorenzo would house him, feed him, and take care of his needs. Michelangelo's father accepted, and Michelangelo was taken under the familial wing of Lorenzo Medici. Michelangelo was treated like a son, sometimes even better than Lorenzo's actual sons. Everything was provided for him so that he could focus entirely on his studies. And study he did. The three years he spent with the Medici family were perhaps his most formative years. The entire family encouraged him to study the high arts and continued to tell him how much potential he had. But his skill sometimes got him into trouble. After spending a few months at the Medici workshop, Michelangelo and a few other students were studying drawings in a local chapel, recreating what they saw. Apparently, Michelangelo had a habit of mocking other students who weren't as skilled as he was. Usually, the others wouldn't let it bother them, but a student named Pietro Torrigiano had finally had enough. To quote him, One day, when Michelangelo was annoying me, I got more angry than usual, and clenching my fist, I gave him such a blow on the nose that I felt bone and cartilage go down like biscuit beneath my knuckles. And this mark of mine, he will carry with him to the grave. It's documented that Michelangelo was more than a little crass with others. He was said to have been unapologetically honest to the point of rudeness. That's right. And this wouldn't be the first time that Michelangelo's um, honesty would get him in trouble with others. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now back to the story. Michelangelo enjoyed his time with the Medici family. Lorenzo Medici had a habit of throwing enormous parties and carnivals for the people of Florence to enjoy. It would be the time of any teenager's life. Unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Not quite. Michelangelo's patron and friend, Lorenzo Medici, passed away. This was a big loss for Michelangelo. After Lorenzo's passing, Michelangelo went back to live with his father for a few months. After some time, he was called back to the Medici family estate by Lorenzo's eldest son, Piero Medici. Piero had a lot of respect for Michelangelo and allowed him to stay with the Medici family for a whole year. He even tasked Michelangelo with building a colossal snowman in the courtyard of their estate in winter. Michelangelo was beginning to expand his range of studies. It was around this time that he became more or less obsessed with anatomy and the study of the human body. It was a bit difficult to study anatomy at the time, as it mostly involved dissecting dead bodies, something that was definitely frowned upon by the church. Thankfully, Michelangelo was good friends with a more liberal-minded figure in the church who worked in a mortuary. He gave Michelangelo a room and allowed him to dissect dead bodies to his heart's content. It's said that Michelangelo spent so much time around dead bodies that he became violently ill. Condivi, one of Michelangelo's biographers, wrote about the experience. He said, quote, his prolonged habits of dissection injured his stomach to such an extent that he lost the power of eating or drinking to any profit, end quote. That's dedication. Sure is. Around this time, Michelangelo decided to take some time to travel. He and two of his friends set off for Venice. After a few days in Venice, they decided to head back to Florence. On their journey home, they stopped in Bologna. As it turns out, they arrived in an unlucky time, as the city had just instituted a new customs fee for people who were traveling through the city. They were all young and broke, so they weren't able to afford the steep fine. Thankfully, a local nobleman heard that Michelangelo was a sculptor and got them out of having to pay the fee. The nobleman invited Michelangelo over to his estate and, after a lengthy discussion, struck a deal to become Michelangelo's new patron. He worked on various projects for his patron and throughout the city. Michelangelo probably would have stayed with his new patron for a longer period of time, but he was run out of town by a local sculptor who felt cheated that a foreigner was taking work from local artists and, as such, threatened to do Michelangelo harm if he continued to stay and work in Bologna. Around 1495, Michelangelo decided it would be best to move back to Florence. Thankfully, the Medici family happily took him in again. The Medicis gave him a steady stream of work. His first assignment was a statue of Cupid. When he finished the statue, Michelangelo's patron told him that he should bury it to make it look like an antique. That way he could sell it for more money. Michelangelo listened. He sold the piece to a Roman art dealer for 30 ducats. The art dealer eventually resold the Cupid statue to Cardinal Giovanni O'Giorgio for a whopping 200 ducats, much more than Michelangelo ever got for the piece. The cardinal eventually recognized that the statue was not an antique, but in fact a modern Florentine recreation. He had been ripped off. He also recognized that the statue was done by someone with great skill and set out to find the sculptor responsible. 
The Cardinal sent an assistant to Florence to track down the sculptor. The assistant eventually found Michelangelo and explained the situation to him. Understandably, Michelangelo was a little bit upset that he had been ripped off by the art dealer. If he knew he could have gotten 200 ducats out of the statue, he probably wouldn't have made the deal. The assistant requested that Michelangelo come to Rome so that the cardinal could meet him and pay him properly for the statue. Michelangelo agreed and journeyed to Rome. The cardinal paid him a small amount of money for the statue and became Michelangelo's newest patron. He didn't give him much to do, so Michelangelo just enjoyed his time in Rome. Eventually, word got around about the skilled young sculptor. Another cardinal, Cardinal Jean-Francois, wanted to have a piece of Michelangelo's handiwork and commissioned him to sculpt a statue. The statue would be a pieta, a fairly common style of statue that depicts the Virgin Mary holding a dead Jesus Christ in her arms. Michelangelo was up to the task and created the sculpture for the cardinal. Cardinal Francois and everyone else who saw the sculpture was beyond impressed. The minute level of detail and overall sense of beauty that Michelangelo captured in the Pieta still remains unrivaled. The statue did a lot for Michelangelo's career as an artist. Unfortunately, because he was still a generally unknown artist, some people credited his work to other sculptors. Frustrated at not being given proper credit, Michelangelo locked himself in the chapel with the statue and carved his name into it, front and center, something he would come to regret later in life. The Pietà is the only piece Michelangelo ever signed. After some time living it up in Rome, Michelangelo eventually returned to Florence in 1501, bringing his newly heightened reputation with him. While Florence might not have been as illustrious as Rome, there was still plenty of work for Michelangelo to do. One of his first projects was assigned by the Board of Works for the main church of Florence, and it was no small undertaking. The Board of Works owned a piece of marble that stood about 20 feet tall. It had been worked on by a sculptor before, but he abandoned the project, leaving the marble in a state of disuse. The board was tired of just having it sit around collecting dust and wanted to give it to a worthy sculptor to create something they could display. The board considered a few artists. One sculptor begged the board to grant him the marble, saying that he would create a great statue after adding more pieces to it. The board thought it through and decided they should see if Michelangelo wanted the piece. As it turns out, he did, and he promised he could deliver them a sculpture without needing to attach any extra pieces. The board granted him the giant block of marble, and Michelangelo got to work. The block was so big that Michelangelo had to build a shed around it to be able to work on it properly. After three years of work, Michelangelo unveiled the finished piece, the Statue of David. The statue stood 17 feet high and weighed more than six tons. Much like the Pietà, the level of minute detail seen in the Statue of David is astonishing, even by today's standards. The Board of Works was pleased with the completed statue and set about deciding where they should put it. They formed a small council of artists to advise them. One of those artists was none other than the Renaissance man, Leonardo da Vinci. It was decided that the statue would live in the central plaza just outside the Church of Florence. It took more than 40 men four days to move the statue to its final resting place. Soon after the completion of the David, Michelangelo was brought on to another project. This project would bring him in direct competition with his artistic rival, Leonardo da Vinci. Well, to be clear, the two didn't hate each other. Michelangelo just felt that da Vinci was the only living artist whose work could rival his own. Talk about an ego. Well, was he wrong? 
Anyway, in 1505, Michelangelo and da Vinci were both tasked with painting the Florence Council Hall with large fresco paintings showing scenes from Florence's history. Both artists chose a battle scene as their subject matter. Da Vinci chose the Battle of Anghiari, a battle fought between Florence and Milan, while Michelangelo chose the Battle of Cascina, a battle fought between Florence and Pisa. Unfortunately, both artists abandoned the project early on, and neither painting was completed. After abandoning the Battle of Cascina painting, Michelangelo received a request to come to Rome from Pope Julius II. Pope Julius was a rather fiery pope, one more focused on conquering than on preaching. Despite his temper and love of fighting, he apparently had a decent love of the arts as he called Michelangelo to Rome with the intention of becoming his patron. So how exactly did the patron system work? Was a patron just someone who gave projects to an artist? Kind of. Patrons were generally wealthy people, usually nobles or rulers, who would help support an artist while they work, usually giving them assignments. That seems pretty philanthropic. It might seem that way, but most patrons had an ulterior motive driving their financing of art, political agenda, social ambition, or even just to simply show off how much money they had. Mm. How long did a patronage tend to last? It would depend. Uh, They would last as long as the patron wanted to keep supporting the artist, or as long as the artist chose to stay. Some artists would stay with the same patron for many years, sometimes their whole lives. Kind of like the Renaissance equivalent of working at the same company your whole life. Exactly. Job security for artists could be hard to come by, so some would latch on to their patron and make sure they stayed happy. Other artists, like Michelangelo, would jump around from patron to patron. Like being a freelancer. Right. Less job security, but you get to kind of pick and choose the work you want. The prospect of working directly for the Pope was a big deal for any artist. Michelangelo packed his things and went to Rome as soon as he could, ready to work. But when he arrived, the Pope didn't have anything for him to do. In fact, Michelangelo spent his first few weeks in Rome doing nothing and waiting for the Pope to give him an assignment. This would mark the beginning of Michelangelo's career working for a long series of Popes. In 1505, after sitting around for a while, Pope Julius finally decided to put Michelangelo to work. His first assignment was to design and build the Pope's tomb. Little did Michelangelo know what he was getting into. The building of the Pope's tomb would come to haunt him for the next 30 years. In the meantime, Michelangelo quickly finished the initial design for the tomb and presented it to Julius. Julius was so pleased that he sent Michelangelo out right away with two servants and a horse to acquire the marble necessary. Michelangelo spent eight months procuring all the marble he needed. In the end, he sent back more than 34 cartloads of marble to Rome. Once he had all his stone, Michelangelo began to create the statues for the tomb. The project hit a bit of a snag early on. Michelangelo had requested an audience with the Pope to discuss the matter of purchasing more stones. The Pope, however, gave Michelangelo the cold shoulder and refused to meet with him and sent him away. Apparently the Pope had changed his mind about the tomb altogether. This angered Michelangelo to the point of selling all his things and leaving Rome in the middle of the night and moving back to Florence. The Pope, to say the least, was mildly upset at Michelangelo's departure. He sent Michelangelo many threatening letters, ordering him to return to Rome, all of which Michelangelo ignored. While this was happening, Pope Julius's chief architect, Donato Bramante, convinced him that the tomb shouldn't be finished during his life, since it would be bad luck. 
Meanwhile, Michelangelo remained too stubborn to return to Rome. It wasn't until his friends back in Rome begged him to return that he finally listened. He returned to Rome to continue his work on the tomb, but Julius had other plans. When Michelangelo returned in 1508, the Pope tasked him with painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. This idea was introduced to the Pope by Donato Bramante. Bramante resented Michelangelo for being tasked with building the Pope's tomb and hoped to embarrass Michelangelo by forcing him to work in a medium he wasn't familiar with. Michelangelo dreaded the idea of painting the Sistine Chapel and tried to convince the Pope to choose a different, more skilled painter. But the Pope's mind was made up. Michelangelo would paint an enormous fresco mural in the Sistine Chapel. The original plan presented by Pope Julius was a mural of the Twelve Apostles. Michelangelo wasn't a big fan of the original design and instead proposed a more complex design made up of nine scenes from the Book of Genesis. After seeing his initial sketch for the mural, the Pope happily agreed to Michelangelo's design. With the design completed, the project was officially underway. The first order of business, design and build a scaffold. The 68-foot-high ceiling of the Sistine Chapel was too high to reach by regular means, so a special scaffold had to be engineered and constructed so Michelangelo could paint. The job of designing the scaffold fell on the shoulders of the Pope's architect, Bramante. Bramante's initial design for the scaffold required drilling holes into the ceiling to run ropes through. After seeing this design, Michelangelo knew that Bramante was up to no good and opted to design and build his own scaffold, one that didn't require drilling into his workspace. With the scaffold taken care of, Michelangelo was about ready to start painting. There was one more thing he needed before he got started, though. Because Michelangelo wasn't confident in his ability to paint a fresco of this proportion, Michelangelo assembled a team of five artists from Florence that had a lot of experience with painting in fresco. Among these artists was one of Michelangelo's oldest friends, Francesco Granacci. With the scaffold finished and his team assembled, Michelangelo set out to paint what is probably his most well-known work. But the project ran into problems once work on the painting began. Michelangelo was displeased with the work his assistants were doing. He felt that their old-school style wasn't in line with his original vision for the painting. It's said that he fired all of his assistants, removed all the work they had done, and sealed up the chapel, working in secrecy to finish the painting alone. It's likely that he brought back, or kept at least some assistants on the job, as parts of the painting appear to have been done by a less talented hand. But conflicting artistic visions wasn't the only problem that plagued the project. The painting was to be done in fresco, which involves applying wet paint to wet plaster. All that moisture apparently led to a big mold problem, and so much mold started to grow on the painting that you couldn't even see the figures underneath. Michelangelo saw this as his out. He approached the Pope and told him that the work he had done thus far was more or less ruined, and for that reason he should be relieved of the project altogether. The Pope wouldn't have it. Thankfully, one of Michelangelo's assistants created a new recipe for the plaster that resisted mold. This new method would later become a traditional method in painting fresco. Michelangelo worked on in secrecy. After many months, he was ready to reveal the first half of the painting. In 1509, Pope Julius and the citizens of Rome gathered in the Sistine Chapel for the unveiling. The painting Michelangelo revealed amazed everyone. It was so impressive that it's said that the famous painter, Raphael, changed the way he painted entirely. 
After the unveiling, it was time to get back to work. Michelangelo set himself to the task and worked for the next three years to finish the project. These years were probably the toughest physically on Michelangelo, even at the young age of 35. After many months of standing on the scaffold looking up to paint, his body started to ache and his eyesight started to fade. On top of that, Michelangelo had to regularly go to the Pope to beg for more money so he could buy all the supplies he needed. Add this to the fact that he wouldn't have been able to work in the winter months due to the possibility of the fresco freezing, and it's a wonder Michelangelo finished in the time that he did. It wasn't just physical stress that afflicted Michelangelo either. Looking at the letters and poems that he wrote during this time, we can see that there was also a great deal of mental stress brought on to the artist as well. In a letter to his friend Giovanni, Michelangelo writes, quote, My thoughts are crazy, perfidious type. My painting is dead. Defend it for me, Giovanni. Protect my honor. I am not in the right place. I am not a painter. End quote. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to historical figures. Tortured as he was by the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo continued to work. He finished the painting in 1512 and expected to unveil it to the public of Rome. But what he didn't expect was that word had spread around Italy about how magnificent the first half of the painting was and that people from all across the country would come to see the unveiling. If people were amazed by the first half, seeing the fully completed mural left everyone at a loss for words. Nothing like this had been seen before. After all the years of secrecy, Michelangelo stood before his mural and showed the world that he wasn't only a master sculptor, but also a master painter. Needless to say, he was a little more than happy to be done with the project. Pope Julius was also rather pleased with the completion of the painting, as he proceeded to shower Michelangelo with money and gifts as reward for his hard work. All those years of headache and arguing finally paid off for both of them. Most importantly for Michelangelo, the completion of the Sistine Chapel meant that he could finally continue his work on the Pope's tomb. Just as Michelangelo started to work once more on the tomb, in 1513, Pope Julius II died, and a new pope was to be sworn in. Giovanni de' Medici, who Michelangelo knew from childhood, was selected to be the new pope. Giovanni was sworn in under the name Pope Leo X. Pope Leo, looking to make a strong first impression, wanted to construct a new facade for the San Lorenzo Basilica in Florence, a church constructed by the Medici family and adorned the building with statues. He thought Michelangelo would be perfect for the job. He ordered Michelangelo to start working on the building at once. Michelangelo, still upholding to his contract with the previous pope, argued that he wished to finish the tomb for Pope Julius. Pope Leo wouldn't hear it. He sent Michelangelo to purchase the marble for the project. Michelangelo spent the next three years procuring marble and building mock-ups for the Pope. 
After three years of non-stop working, the project eventually fell through due to lack of funds, thanks to an ongoing war that Pope Julius had started years prior. This was a time of great stress for Michelangelo, as he was working constantly on multiple projects thought up by Pope Leo, but all that would stop in 1521, when Pope Leo died at the age of 45. He was succeeded by Pope Adrian VI. Pope Adrian only reigned as Pope for two years before dying in 1523. His time as Pope was too short for him to start any major projects or make use of Michelangelo's skills. After Adrian's passing, a new Pope was picked. Cardinal Giulio de' Medici, another old friend of Michelangelo's, was chosen as the next Pope, taking the name Clement VII. Compared to his cousin Leo, Pope Clement was a bit more respectful to Michelangelo, assigning him more reasonable and less physically demanding projects. Michelangelo hoped that he would be able to return to his work on the tomb of Pope Julius, but Clement had a few projects that he wanted the artist to finish first, specifically additions to the San Lorenzo Basilica. The first of these additions came in the form of the Medici family tombs. Though he had never finished the facade for San Lorenzo, he was able to design and build the tombs in the Medici chapel. During this assignment, he was tasked with building the tomb for his old mentor and guardian, Lorenzo Medici. The second of the additions was that of the Laurentian Library, a vast library that held the personal manuscripts and books belonging to the Medici family. As you might imagine, designing and building these structures for Pope Clement meant that tomb of Pope Julius was put on the back burner for a while. So long, in fact, that Julius's heirs grew upset at Michelangelo's lack of progress. They thought he had abandoned the project altogether and threatened him with a lawsuit. This greatly distressed Michelangelo, because in reality, the only project he seemed to deeply care about was building the tomb. He had been trying to build the tomb for the last decade or so, but the powers that be simply wouldn't let him. And life would continue to find a way to keep Michelangelo from completing it. In 1527, Rome was sacked by the army of the Holy Roman Emperor. Rome was taken over, and the Pope was forced to go into hiding at a nearby castle. Inspired by the turn of events in Rome, Florence decided it was time they took their own city back. They proceeded to toss out the Medici family and establish their own republic. Michelangelo was worried for his home city and left Rome for Florence. For the next two years, Michelangelo helped refortify Florence in an effort to protect it from a Medici invasion. Uh, wait, I thought Michelangelo liked the Medici family. Why would he protect Florence from them? Mm -hmm. Well, while he might have liked the Medici family, his heart and loyalty still belonged to his hometown and its people. He wanted to help protect them by any means necessary. His skills in architecture were put to good use as he helped fortify the city walls and bolster other general defenses. Unfortunately, in 1530, the Medicis fought their way back into Florence, taking it over once again. This worried Michelangelo as he was sure the Medicis wouldn't take too kindly to him helping defend the city from them. Fearing their wrath, he fled from Florence and headed to Venice to escape the grasp of the Medicis. Michelangelo spent a few months abroad working for the Duke of Ferrara to let the situation cool down and eventually returned to Florence to continue his work at San Lorenzo. 
During this time in the 1530s, Michelangelo spread himself thin by taking on multiple jobs. It got so bad that Pope Clement wrote him a letter saying that he was worried for his health and that he should try and stick to only working on the additions at San Lorenzo. But Michelangelo was stubborn. He continued to work more, eat poorly, and sleep less. Everyone grew worried that he would work himself to death. Again, Pope Clement wrote him a letter, this time a bit more stern. He ordered Michelangelo to put aside all work that wasn't related to San Lorenzo, and if he refused, then he would be excommunicated from the church. Did he listen? Not at all. Michelangelo continued to be stubborn and take multiple commissions in spite of the threat of excommunication. During this time, he was traveling back and forth between Rome and Florence, taking on whatever jobs he pleased. He stayed pretty busy almost all the time. Then in 1534, tragedy struck Michelangelo and his family. His father, Lodovico, passed away. This was a devastating loss for Michelangelo and left a devastating sense of loss in his life. One of the many poems written by Michelangelo throughout his adult life discusses his feelings on the loss. Quote, Your splendor with the night sinks not in shade, nor grows with day. However that sun ride high, which on our mortal hearts life's heat hath rayed. Thus from thy dying I now learn to die. Dear father mine, in thought I see thy place, where earth but rarely lets men climb the sky. End quote. It was around this time that Michelangelo finished his work on San Lorenzo, to the great relief of many. Pope Clement, wanting to make use of Michelangelo's talents, commissioned him to paint another mural in the Sistine Chapel. The mural would depict a scene of the Last Judgment from the Bible and was to be painted in fresco just like the other mural Michelangelo had painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo moved to Rome in 1534 to start initial work on the project. As Michelangelo was preparing to start the mural, Pope Clement died in 1534, leaving the papal seat open once again. Michelangelo mourned for the loss of his friend. But in the wake of his passing, Michelangelo thought he would be relieved from working on the mural and could finally get back to working on the tomb of Pope Julius II. But the new pope, Pope Paul III, had a different plan. He wanted Michelangelo to work for him and was determined to have him by any means. But Michelangelo was also determined. He was going to finish the tomb of Pope Julius, even if it meant disobeying the newly appointed pope. Michelangelo told Pope Paul that he would love to serve him, but he still had a previous contract to finish the tomb of Pope Julius and couldn't freely abandon it. As one can imagine, the new pope didn't take too kindly to not getting his way. As Pope Paul said, It is thirty years that I have cherished this desire, and now that I am pope, may I not indulge it? Where is the contract? I mean to tear it up. After clearly upsetting the pope, Michelangelo entertained the idea of going into hiding and staying with an old friend of Pope Julius II while he finished the tomb. He eventually decided against running and incurring the wrath of the current pope. Then one day, Pope Paul surprised Michelangelo at his house in Rome, accompanied by about ten cardinals. They examined the statues that Michelangelo had completed so far for the tomb, and upon seeing a statue of Moses, one of the cardinals called out, quote, That piece alone is sufficient to do honor to the monument of Julius. After exploring the workshop, Pope Paul decided he would amend the contract for Julius's tomb. He told Michelangelo that three statues would be more than enough and that he would contract another sculptor to finish three more. 
Michelangelo was free of his obligation with the tomb of Pope Julius, albeit through a compromise that he was less than happy with. While he might not have been fully satisfied with the finished product, Michelangelo's contribution to the tomb was magnificent all the same. After more than 30 years, Michelangelo could put the tomb to rest. With the obligation of the tomb out of the way, Michelangelo went back to work on the mural in the Sistine Chapel, which he eventually completed after about seven years of work in 1541. Michelangelo completed other works in this time as well, including the conversion of St. Paul and the martyrdom of St. Peter. Condivi, one of Michelangelo's biographers, described the works as stupendous not only in the general exposition of the histories, but also in the details of each figure. Not bad, considering Michelangelo was well into his 70s at this point, and that he didn't even consider himself a painter. It was around this time that Michelangelo's health started to decline, but he kept on working just like always. In 1546, Pope Paul appointed Michelangelo as architect-in-chief for St. Peter's Basilica. The church had been undergoing major reconstruction, a project that had taken up more than 50 years. Everyone was hoping that Michelangelo would be the one to finally wrap up the project, but many were doubtful. Some even thought he might pass away before its completion. The project, having passed through so many hands, was a mess. But Michelangelo, being a man of many talents, spearheaded the completion and managed to finish the construction to the surprise and relief of many. But something was brewing beneath the completion of the construction. The previous chief architect, a man named Antonio da Sangallo, had worked on the project for nearly 30 years. The entire construction team was made up of people Sangallo had hired. There's reason to believe that much of the money that was spent on the construction of the basilica over the last 30 or so years had been misappropriated. And the people who seemed to benefit were the craftsmen that Sangallo had hired. Michelangelo wasn't one to put up with foolishness, and he cracked down on the team, replacing them when he saw signs of corruption. This made Michelangelo more than a few enemies in Rome. This group of craftsmen worked to try and have Michelangelo removed from his position at the Vatican and to make sure work wouldn't come his way. Thankfully, Pope Paul loved Michelangelo and wouldn't let him go. Unfortunately, in 1549, Pope Paul III passed away, Michelangelo lost one of his most powerful allies and close friends. As Michelangelo said, I have suffered great sorrow and not less loss by the Pope's death. God willed it so and we must have patience. His passage from this life was beautiful in full possession of his faculties up to the last word. God have mercy on his soul. Thankfully, Michelangelo continued to work for Pope Paul's successors, but the fear of betrayal and backstabbing never fully went away. In his final years, Michelangelo took it rather easy. He completed a number of small projects while continuing to design and spearhead the construction of many buildings around Rome. He worked up until the day he died in 1564. As a last request, Michelangelo wished his body to be buried in his hometown of Florence. While he spent the majority of his life in Rome, his heart never left the countryside he grew up in. Michelangelo worked from the time he was a teenager until he died at 88 years old. He proved mastery over multiple artistic disciplines, including sculpture, painting, and architecture, but he always considered himself a sculptor above all else. He saw the rise and fall of many popes and found himself on the wrong side of many of their tempers. Through it all, he never lost sight of what mattered to him, his work. 
The man's work has influenced many artists over the centuries, including Nicolas Cousteau and Auguste Rodin, and still continues to do so. It seems as if the stars were right. Michelangelo fulfilled his destiny and created a number of marvelous and stupendous works of art, works that would change the face of the art world forever. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And as always, thank you for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Connor Angus and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 